Uh, we're going to be this morning in a couple of verses in Isaiah uh, chapter 40. So if you've been with us for any amount of time, you can probably predict what this sermon is going to be because it is the last sermon uh, of the year. And this has been a habit that I have been doing since I was in ministry and the person uh, with whom I was a youth pastor at their church, he had been doing it uh, as a habit that he had for as long as almost as long as he had been uh, in ministry. Uh, so this actually has a, a sort of a rich legacy because the pastor that mentored my mentor had been doing it for about as long as he was in ministry. And in fact, I happened to hear a sermon from him one time, and it was on this very topic, challenging people to read through the Bible in a year. Um, and that was actually the first time that I read through the Bible. So uh, read through the Bible in, uh, well, it took me longer than a year the first time, but read through it cover uh, to cover. So let me encourage you. Let me also say to those of you uh, that are younger, that are teenagers or even younger than teenagers, this is something that you can do as well, because I, I know of people and uh, I myself did it uh, before I was a teenager. Like I said, uh, it did take me longer than a year the first time, but that's and that's OK. Uh, but read through the Bible. So this is something that is, is very near and dear to my heart. But as we get going this morning, uh, let's look at Isaiah chapter 40, verses six through eight. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower, fla- the, fa- the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. Let's pray this morning. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this day and we thank you for the chance to gather and hear your word. And we pray uh, that you would just speak to us from your word. Lord, we have such an embarrassment of riches when it comes to the opportunity and the ease with which we can get access to a Bible and read it. Uh, And yet so often, Lord, we do not spend time in your word. We do not spend time uh, reading it for ourselves. I pray this morning that you would challenge each one of us, whether we are young or old, whether we are a new believer or have been believers uh, for many decades. Uh, I pray that we would take seriously the the diligent task of of reading uh, your word. Uh, In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. I want to challenge you this morning, and our, our point this morning is simply this. Devour... The word of God, devour your Bible, spend time in it, eat it, Uh, not literally, but but dig into it, read over it. It has a lasting impact on your life. Reading your Bible can be much like healthy eating. You may not remember what you ate six months ago, but it changed you. It helped you in some way. A steady, regular diet of healthy food changes your body over a lifetime. It keeps you healthy. It keeps certain things from you. So it is with the word of God. And sometimes when it comes to preaching or when it comes to reading the word of God, we think, well, you know, what's the point of doing it? Because I don't remember what I read. I don't remember the sermon that I heard six months ago, or I don't remember where I was reading in the Bible uh, eight months ago or two months ago or two weeks ago. The point is you are having a healthy diet. 
spend time in the word of God, devour the word of God. We have three simple points uh, this morning. Uh, uh, forgive me for um, stealing and modifying the theme of Reebok. Uh, but the first point this morning is life is short. Read hard as opposed to life is short. Play hard. Uh, life is short. So don't waste it. But spend time reading your Bible. Do things of eternal value. So we see in our passage this morning, all flesh is like grass. Verse 6, a voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? And here is the cry. All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. First, this morning, you notice here, human beings have real and genuine beauty. Uh, it's not saying here that human beings are worthless. Human beings are made in the image of God. And by virtue of, of being made in the image of God, even with all the corruption of sin, we still have a vestige of the image of God left in us. So he compares us to the flower of the field. And I would submit to you that flowers in the field are a beautiful thing. Uh, ask any mother who has had her little child come in and pick the the ugliest, ruddiest flowers from the field. And the mom just their hearts melt. Flowers in the field are a beautiful thing. Uh, guys, we need to go to the flower shop, though, to buy our flowers. Right. We can't just pick the really ugly ones from the field. Uh, there's just something to that. But all flowers are beautiful. But notice here the contrast All flesh is grass and all its beauty like the flower of the field. So humanity here in the context is actually standing in contrast to the glory of God. And if you have your Bibles, look back a few verses. Start back in verse three. A voice in the wilderness cries or a voice cries in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. All flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So the contrast is all flesh when the Lord Jesus comes will see the glory of the Lord. But who are we? We are like grass. We are like the flowers of the field. And you think about how flowers of the field, they spring up today, but are often gone tomorrow. A hot sun in the middle of the summer will will wither those flowers just in one day. Uh, A hard wind, a strong drought. And those flowers are very, very frail. They're delicate. And so it is with human beings. When you compare who we are to the magnificent glory of God, we are but small flowers. We are delicate compared to the strength and might of a wonderful God. So like grass and flowers that wither, so God's breath can wither us. Look at verses seven and eight. The grass withers. The flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers. The flower fades. But the word of the Lord will stand forever. Again, consider here who can stand in the presence of God. 
consider here our own human frailty. If we are lucky enough to live 80 or 90 years in our life, that is but a drop in the bucket compared to the ocean of God's eternity. The majesty of his power, his his infinite divine nature. And would you dare you and I dare to to stand before God and, and dictate terms to him and say to God, you know, you have to give me an answer. You have to explain to me why you're doing this or why you allowed to happen. You need to come down and tell me a thing or two. No, because we're flesh. And we wither up before the breath of a mighty and and glorious God. We do not come into his presence as those who can bring a challenge to him or those who can even demand an answer from him. If only God would tell me he owes me that much. Brothers and sisters, God doesn't owe us anything. God is majestic in his glory. Remember Nebuchadnezzar, if I can use an illustration from Scripture, Remember how strong he was? Remember how powerful he was? Remember how vast his empire was? And he goes out on the the wall of the city of Babylon. And this is a wall where they could drive numerous chariots on. So so imagine a wall that you can with a two lane highway or a three lane highway running across the top of it. And he looks out over all that he's built and he becomes prideful. And God strikes him down. And God makes him eat of the grass like a like a, a common beast, like an animal for seven years. And it describes how rough and shuffled his hair gets. It, it almost becomes like like feathers on, on you ever see a, a, a yucky bird and how the feathers all stick together and they're clumpy. This is what happens to Nebuchadnezzar. And then when Nebuchadnezzar's sanity is restored to him, it says this. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. None can say stay his hand and say to him, what have you done? This is who we are before a great and holy God. And so when we approach the word of God, we need to remember our own frailty and finiteness. So a little later on in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 55, if you want to just flip over there, starting in verse eight, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways higher than your ways, my thoughts than your thoughts. The whole purpose then is of considering this as we turn to the word of God. Why do I need the word of God? Because I need God to reveal things to me. If I'm going to know who God is, God has to tell me. If I'm going to know the plans and purposes of God, God has to tell me. Now, there is a lot of the plans and purposes of God that I do not know. And he does not tell me. For example, he doesn't tell me the day of my death. 
He doesn't tell me if I'm going to wake up tomorrow or not. He doesn't tell me if I'm going to have a good day tomorrow or a bad day. But there is a multitude of things that he does tell me in the word of God regarding his eternal plans, particularly how they come to a climax in the saving work of Jesus Christ. Now, if you had to invent a story about a savior, do you think that you would come up with someone who sacrifices themselves undergoing torture on the cross? No, by human standards, that seems foolish. But that's because our ways and thoughts are not God's ways and thoughts. God's wisdom is far above human wisdom. And as 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 2 teach us, we often think that our wisdom is smarter than God and we think that God's wisdom is foolishness. This idea of the cross and the Savior. Oh, that sounds barbaric, people say. But this is God's wisdom. This far surpasses anything that you and I, even in our wildest imagination, could ever dream up. Pondering an infinite God. Pondering one who is omnipotent. Pondering one who has this glory that just radiates out. We don't even begin to scratch the surface of the majesty of God. And we need God to tell us who he is and what he's done. Do not think that you can get to God in your own thinking, in your own logic, in your own human wisdom and human philosophy. No, we need God to reveal himself. All the knowledge of God that we have comes because God revealed it to us. And if God hadn't revealed anything to us, we would know absolutely nothing about him. And so when you think about the Bible and we think about the revelation of Jesus Christ and you think about how you as a believer in Christ know God, not just know about God, but but know him in that relationship. Remember this, you only know him because he revealed himself to you. You didn't say, I'm going to find this out on my own. I'm going to figure this out. God said, I'm going to show you who I am. So why do we read the Bible? Because God has shown us in it who he is. Why wouldn't you spend time getting to know him? And I want to bring two reflections here. Number one, do I want to hear from God because I know who he is? In other words, the more I know about him, the more I know how much higher he is than me, I should want to hear from him. I should be saying to him, I can't understand you unless you teach me about yourself. And the Holy Spirit uses the word of God to instruct our hearts and teach us. I can only know the things of God that he makes known to me. I need his guidance, his instruction and his knowledge to come to me. And where are you going to find that? In the Bible. Where are you going to learn more about Jesus? In the Bible. You're not going to want to turn to to human books. You're not going to want to turn to things that man has written. You're not going to want to turn to human philosophy to figure out more about Jesus or God. You want 
the Bible. Second thing this morning as a reflection, do I spend time in God's word to hear from him? The Bible is God's word. It is written where it is written. God has spoken. He speaks in his word. Second Timothy 3.16. All scripture is breathed out by God. You think of how when you speak and when you talk, you you breathe out words. You can put your hand in in front of your mouth and you can feel the air, particularly when you say words with peas, right? It poofs out. So it is the written word of God is something that God himself has breathed out. Now, he has used men. He has used people down through the ages. Second Peter one twenty one for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so the books of the Bible often take on aspects and attributes and and um, of the human writer. Some of the books have very high grammar. Some of the books have very low grammar. But each and every word that is in the Bible is the word of God carried along by the Holy Spirit. If you want God's word, open your Bible. It's been said, if you want to hear God's word, read your Bible out loud. We have people all over the world today that are running to and fro to try to hear from God. And they never open the Bible. The Bible is God's word. So life is short. We're frail. So read hard. You want to know God? Get in the word. Devour it. Second this morning, feed on something of eternal value. So God's word stands forever. We are going to have so many fun things that we did in this life that were fun at the time and weren't necessarily sinful, but they don't have eternal value. When I get to heaven, I will not care how many episodes of Star Trek I watched. I know some of you know how much I like Star Trek, but it's not going to matter. It's still fun to do. It's not a bad thing to watch a Star Trek here or there. Shouldn't be the only thing I do in my life. You know, I shouldn't binge for 40 hours in, in a in a three day period or something like that. But reading the word has eternal value. So God's word stands forever. This is what verse eight says. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Again, it's the contrast between our frailty and what God has said. And you think about this. God has spoken. Isaiah 40, verse 5, he says, The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Isaiah 55, 10 and 11, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, make it bring forth and sprout, give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So my word be so shall my word be, excuse me, that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the things for which I sent it. God, through his word, accomplishes his purposes in the world. And so Isaiah is writing uh, before they go into exile in Babylon. 
before they are taken away, before Nebuchadnezzar, before the Daniel and the events of his life. And how do we know that God will actually bring his people out of that exile? Making a highway across the desert for them is the imagery. We know it because the word of the Lord stands forever. When God says he's going to do something, he does it. When God makes a promise, he keeps it. So how do we know he's going to send the Messiah? How could these people of God live for hundreds and thousands of years waiting for the promises of God that we have just celebrated at Christmas? Because God's word stands forever. You think of how the rain and the snow fall and it does something. It waters the ground. And what does a a watered ground do? It makes it good to to plant your seeds and your crops in it. What does that wet, moist soil do when when a seed and a crop is put in it? It begins to flourish. It grows up in the same way that water and snow do something. The word of God does something. It accomplishes its purpose. And I would submit to you even more than just on a world scale. God's word accomplishes its purposes in the individual. Think of how you were were born again from God. The scriptures say this of his own will. He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruit of his creatures. James 1.18 God, by his word, brought forth your salvation. First Peter 1.23, since you have been born again, not of a perishable seed, but imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. The gospel accomplishes its purpose in our life. The word of God is living and active. Hebrews 4.12. It cuts our hearts in good ways, exposing our sin, teaching us the truth, bringing the salve of comfort that Jesus has died for us and paid the penalty for our sins, causing us to grow up, transforming us to be more Christ-like, being the fruit of the Spirit manifesting in, in us. The Spirit uses the Word of God to cultivate that. It is refreshing. It is delightful. And so, as I mentioned, the word of God causes us to be born again. I want you to notice how Peter actually quotes these verses in Isaiah 40. First Peter, again, 1, 23 to 25. Since you have been born again, not of a perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and the glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. When a preacher preaches the word of God, when he sticks to the word of God and and brings across the gospel, this feeds us. This causes people to be born again, not in that way of the flesh that withers and fades and dies up, but with an imperishable seed. You and I in Christ will live forever. Unless we think that Peter is somehow using Isaiah out of context, the next verse in Isaiah 40, verse 9, that he doesn't quote is this. Go on up to a high mountain of Zion, herald of good news. 
Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up. Fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold, your God reigns. And so it is that the preaching of the word of God should be equally important as the reading of the word of God. This is why I encourage you to bring your Bibles or now I've got to say your Bible apps to church. Open it up. Read the word of God. Follow along when we're reading. Go home at the end of the day and and after the sermon, you know, read all of Isaiah 40 just to say, okay, I want to make sure I know what's going on here. The guard of the pulpit is not just not merely the man in the pulpit. It's the word of God that is open, that we all carry copies of with us. This is why it is so vital in the life of our church that our the main number one thing that we need to do out of all the ministries that are good and we should be doing is preaching the word of God. And the preaching of the word of God goes hand in hand with the people reading the word of God at home. And so I'm going to say to you, read your Bible this year and don't just read parts of your Bible. Read through your whole Bible this year. And I'll give you some tips at the end on how to do that. But God's word stands forever. So it is just as relevant for me today as when it was written. So the reason it is not just an ancient book, the reason it is not like Homer and the Iliad or the Odyssey, which is fun, good, classical literature, but doesn't really mean anything to us today is because it's the word of God and it stands forever. And it is just as much relevant and applicable to our lives today as it was when it was first written. So, again, Second Timothy three sixteen and 17, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for what? Well, he tells us for preaching, for reproof, for correction for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And the reason Paul says they're man of God is he's writing specifically to Timothy, who is a young pastor. And Timothy didn't have seminary like I had. Now, I'm sure he probably learned Greek and some of those things in his own personal study. But the point is this, you know, we live in a day and age where where there are just literally thousands of books you can read that will train you for ministry. And, and it's good to read other books. It's good to seek their wisdom as, as they go back to Scripture. But I remember as a young pastor feeling like, man, well, which books should I read? There's just so many. You never can stay up on all the current ones. It's like the writer of Ecclesiastes says, right, of the making of books, there is no end. If only he would have lived in the day of the printing press, right, and computers and PDFs and blogs. You can go nuts trying to figure out what books you should read to train yourself. Read first and foremost the word of God. Don't be afraid to read other books of people that are digging into the word of God. There are wonderful quality books out there. But the measure of a value of a book in this sense would be how well it points you back to Scripture, how well it digs into the Scripture. Because it's the Scriptures that train you. It's the Scriptures that equip you. You want to be a better Sunday school teacher? Read Scripture. You want to be a better parent? You want to know how to handle your kids better? You want to grow in patience? You want to learn the Word of God? You want to be more righteous in your own life? Read the Scriptures. 
You want to draw closer to the Lord Jesus Christ. Read the scriptures. We have to know God's word. Hosea 4, 6 says, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge. I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I will forget your children. You have to know the word of God. We have to study the word of God. Just as an example, Ezra in Ezra 710, Ezra had his set his heart to study the law of God and to do it uh, to teach his statutes and his rules. So he set himself to study. He set himself to obey it and he set himself to teach it. But let me just focus for a second on the studying. It takes work to know the word of God. The word of God isn't absorbed through osmosis. I cannot open my Bible and lay my head down on it at night and say, well, when I wake up in the morning, I will get everything out of this book that I need it. I have to read it. And guess what? Your reading of it is dependent upon someone who had to do the hard work of translating it. And that's why some of us have invested time in doing the hard work of learning to translate Greek and Hebrew. And some of you have learned to use tools that help you understand it. Just like studying algebra can be really hard. Studying the word of God can be hard. But now we all complain, well, what do I need algebra for? I'm never going to use it in my life. You will never stand with the word of God and say, what do I need this for? I'm never going to use this in my life. It is something worth digging into, devouring, feeding on. You have then also to make an effort to faithfully obey and apply God's word. For example, this is why I've said you need to read all of God's word. If you only were reading Leviticus, think of how skewed your applications would be. You would be going out and you would be slaughtering a ram and a goat. And you would be celebrating the Feast of Booth by making little huts inside of your your home. And you would maybe be practicing the laws of circumcision. And when you go out and shop for clothes, you would look at the tag and you would say, you know, are, are there two different kinds of thread in here? Because I don't want to break the word of God. And, and we smile and we chuckle. But there are Christians today that apply the word of God in that fashion. And I'm not trying to mock them. I'm trying to say we need to read the whole of the word of God. I always make the joke about shellfish and shrimp because it's so true. That command is 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 shown to be fulfilled and no longer applicable in the New Testament because of the way the plans and promises of God unfold. And so it's not that we're taking parts of the word of God and ripping out and saying we don't need that anymore. We're saying we're looking at the whole of Scripture and seeing how it unfolds. Why do we not do the sacrifices anymore physically? Because Christ fulfills it. Why do we not celebrate Passover anymore in a literal sense? Because Christ fulfills it. You see, sometimes unbelievers think that we look at the Bible and they say, oh, well, you believe it's all the word of God. But then you pick and choose the parts that you don't like. And so they'll say, you know, well, you're against homosexuality. You're picking on that one because you're a bigot. But look at all this other stuff in Leviticus that you don't do. And the answer is simply no. 
We're not picking and choosing. This isn't a game of eeny, meeny, miny, mo. We're letting all of Scripture guide us. And we're letting the unfolding of the revelation of God down through the ages instruct us and guide us so that it comes to a climax in the work of Jesus Christ. So that Jesus Christ is the center of our Bibles. And this is why I say read all the word of God. Let me ask you this this morning. If the word of God stands forever and I really believe it, And I really believe that it's the word of God. Do I spend time in it? How much time do I spend in it? Is it enough? As you reflect back on 2017, how much time did you devote to Bible reading, whether daily or weekly or monthly? Is it enough? Could you set aside a little more? This year, are there some things that you can cut out? Maybe watch less episodes of Star Trek. That's your thing. But read the word of God because it has eternal value. I know what's going to happen in my home. Next time I turn on an episode of Star Trek, one of my kids is going to come or my wife and say, oh, you said you needed to watch less of that this year. Go read your Bible first, Dad. Let me make for you our third point this morning, and this is the 2018 challenge that we always do. Devour God's word and read through the Bible in a year. Now, on one hand, any Bible reading is good Bible reading. If you decide you want to spend time and do a two-month, three-month-long study and really pour over the Gospel of Matthew or Isaiah or whatever, great. Amen. But the challenge I'm going to bring is specifically to read through your whole Bible. First, you need to spend time in God's word, as I've said. There are a lot of things you do when studying the Bible, but the simple fact of it is none of it happens without setting aside time to do it. If you read some of these people that talk about how to organize your time, they will always tell you you have all the time you need for the things that are most important to you. And it's a matter of prioritizing the most important. How much time are you going to set aside then for reading your Bible? Pick a time a day that you can do it consistently. Pick an average amount of time. So you may ask yourself, well, am I a a morning person? Do I need that refreshing read the word of God before I get out of bed and start interacting with people? Maybe for some of you, it's your lunch break. You're like, man, I get up so early. There's no way I can get up even 15 minutes earlier. But I can I can pull aside at my lunch break while I'm eating my sandwich and read for 15 minutes. Maybe it's after dinner. Maybe some of you like me, I I tend to do best if I do my Bible reading uh, in the evening right before I go to bed. It just quiets me. It calms me down. I set aside all the, the things that are bouncing around in my head. I'm not mocking morning reading at all. I wish sometimes I was better at it. But I'm just saying that has been the best time for me to develop the habit. Can you set aside 15 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, make a commitment to something? And realistically, if you're an average paced reader, you probably only need 15 to 20 minutes a day to make the goal of reading through the Bible in a year. I mean, think about that. How many, you know, countless hours a week do we invest, so to speak, in watching TV? Some of you teenagers and playing video games. Some of you adults and some of your other hobbies. Could you turn off the TV for 10 minutes, 15 minutes, miss that episode of whatever your favorite show is 
and read the word. Second, you need to spend time in all of God's word. We all have our favorite sections. We all have our favorite book. We all have our favorite Bible story. I would venture a guess that all of us are probably more familiar with the New Testament than the Old Testament. However, all of the Bible is God's word, and I need to be reading all of it. Now, some of you are thinking, well, pastor, you know, I really don't know the Old Testament very well. Great. You know how you remedy that? You read it. I didn't know it very well when I read through it the first time. There's stuff that you get lost in and you're just going through and you're like, I'm just not even sure what's going on. But you just read it. And over time, it'll come to you. Over time, you'll get the hang of it. If you have trouble because it is easy to get overwhelmed with the details and lose track, um, they do make tools that can help you. You can get a study Bible, and some of those study Bibles uh, at the beginning of the book, they'll give you sort of an overview, sort of a, a view of 30,000 feet. So you can kind of at least be like, I don't get all the details, but at least I know what's going on now. And as I read through it, it helps you flesh out kind of that overview they gave you at the beginning. Now, the study Bible isn't our authority, but it's just a tool that helps you. Sometimes they'll have little notes at the bottom that help explain a weird phrase. You can get a Bible handbook. Those do some of the same things. They kind of give you a big picture overview. So, you know, before you read three chapters, you can read this little handbook. It has like a paragraph summarizing the chapters. You can oh, okay, I see kind of where I'm going now. Okay, now I'm going to read it and I'm not so clueless. You can get a Bible dictionary and use it to look up all those weird place names. Uh, if you're like, I'm, I'm confused. Bible dictionaries can help you with that. First, let me say this. If you've never read through the whole Bible, I want to encourage you this year to do it. And especially to some of those of us who are teenagers and younger. You can do this, too. And and it would be the most I would be so proud of you and your parents would be so proud of you. And I'm not trying to manipulate you, but it's just an awesome thing when little kids pick up their Bible. And even if you don't like if when I started reading the Bible, I read a chapter a day when I started my Through the Bible in a year. It took me probably about a year and a half because I finally picked up the pace towards the end. But it was good. It's, it's like learning to run, right? We don't all start out running a marathon. You start out doing a light jogging. Maybe some of us start out just walking really slow. And then we learn to walk really fast. And then we learn to maybe jog a little bit. And before you know it, as you train, you can run. You can run long and you can run hard. And the same is true with reading the Bible. Second, especially if you have never read through the Old Testament, do it. Uh, This Christmas, I hope you noticed that we did nothing but preach through the Old Testament for four weeks, these promises of Jesus. If you were going to buy a house and you were going to live on the main floor of the house, you would still go down into the basement and down into the foundation and look at what the house is built on. And you would check it out and make sure it's secure. And you would get to know what is under that house before you buy the house. So it is you and I are, say, New Testament Christians in the sense of we live in the fulfillment of Jesus's death and resurrection. We live, if you can say it this way, in the the times after the New Testament. And yet all of the New Testament is built on the foundation of the Old Testament. Just as you buy your house and live on the first floor, but know what's underneath it. We open the scriptures and the New Testament teaches us about Jesus. 
But we need to know what's underneath it. Because the Old Testament teaches us about Jesus. It lays the entire foundation for everything that is going on in the New Testament. Let me make one more plea. The Old Testament has some fun, great adventures. And I'm admittedly going to appeal to our sort of craven, baser delights. Do you like action? Yes, it's in the Old Testament. Do you like romance? Yes, it's in the Old Testament. Read uh, the book of Ruth. Do you like a young guy's heroes fighting and triumphing? It's in the Old Testament. You know who my favorite Old Testament story was when I was a kid, when I was a boy? Ehud. How many know who Ehud? Well, maybe I shouldn't even do that. Don't raise your hand. Uh, uh, I don't want to embarrass anybody. I was going to say, who doesn't know who Ehud is? Some of you, and it's not, no, I'm not shaming you. Some of you probably don't know who Ehud is. Ehud was really cool. He was left-handed. And so he hit a sword on his right side. And God used his left-handedness to sneak in and kill a pagan king. But he didn't just kill any pagan king. This is why I loved it as a kid. This king was a fat king. And as Ehud takes this sword out that's hidden on his right side, because everybody else would, if you're right-handed, you hide your sword on the left side, right? And they patted him down and they looked for a sword and it wasn't there. As Ehud pulls this sword out and he sticks it into, by the way, the king's name is Eglon. Isn't that just a crazy name, Eglon? And he sticks it into this fat guy. And this guy wasn't just fat. This guy was fat, fat. Because the Bible describes the sword being sucked in around his fat and just going in. And, and, you know, like as a seven-year-old kid, a ten-year-old kid, you're like, oh, wow, it's so gory. That is cool. And then Ehud sneaks out basically through the sewers, basically through the toilet system which wouldn't have been like modern-day sewers. So it was pretty nasty. But he leads the people of God to a great victory in the book of Judges. We can talk about how Judges points to Christ and all of those things, but, but just as a kid, I love that story. If you don't read the whole Bible, you miss out on those, those ones that we just kind of miss because they're maybe small or they're not as exciting. Or I, I don't think I've ever heard a sermon on Ehud and Eglon. Now you heard an illustration, but it wasn't a full sermon. Uh, it's just there's so much good stuff. And, and I know sometimes certain passages in Leviticus are hard and certain passages in Chronicles are hard. And you read some of the prophets and, and admittedly, it can be tough to be a reader of it because we're reading things that are unfamiliar to it. But the Bible is just it's fun. There's awesome stuff in the Bible. Third, if you have read through the whole Bible before. So if you have done it, I want to challenge you to do it again. And I want to challenge you this reason for doing it again. Think about how athletes train. Athletes train using simple drills. And professional athletes, as they grow in their abilities and skills, of course, they add more complex drills. They practice complex catches. Some of these wide receivers in the NFL, they will literally practice those one-hand grabs. You know those things that they do and it just looks like magic? Uh, They are literally practicing that for muscle memory just over and over and over again. But generally speaking, no matter how 
advanced an athlete gets, they still are doing the simple drills. The wind sprints, the running through the tires or the ladder things. Because it develops muscle memory. You always start with the basics and go up. But typically, as an athlete, you never set aside the basics. So maybe some of you have a really deep, really complex regime for studying the Bible. Hey, awesome. You know, if you're pulling out all the books in the Greek and the Hebrew and you're opening it up and you're like, you know, digging in and it takes you like 10 hours to do five verses and that's your study. That's awesome. And I'm not telling you to stop that. But don't forget to read broadly. And the simple drill, the repetitive drill that brings the muscle memory that I want to challenge you to do is read through the Bible in a year. You develop a breadth of the knowledge of the Word of God. You develop a scope of the Word of God. A lot of times, illustrations or stories will pop into your mind because you've you've read them. And so, it's not like reading some literature. Like, there are some books that you read, and you're like, okay, I read it once, you know, like in high school. I read Charles Dickens, and I read Shakespeare, and that's good. I'm done. I'll move on to other things. But the Bible is about reading it again and again. So don't just say, well, I have read through the entire Bible, Pastor. Now I need to zoom in. Yeah, maybe you do need to zoom in. But continue that regular, habitual diet. The last thing is you need to make a plan to read it and study it. They've always said, plan for nothing and you're sure to achieve it. Whatever your Bible reading is for the new year, make a plan. I'm going to give you a plan this morning, but if you go on our Facebook page, I put a link there. There's about eight or eight, I think, different plans of how you can read through the Bible in a year. And you can find your own plans beyond that. But I always give people on the last Sunday of the year a little read through the Bible in a year track. And you can put this in your Bible. It works great as a bookmark. And I love this one. And the reason I like it is... This one you generally do two passages in the two chapters in the Old Testament and then one chapter or some of the longer chapters, only a half a chapter in the New Testament. And the reason I like it is one, you get through the whole Bible in a year. But two, if you're bogged down in Leviticus or some of the names in Chronicles, you can just sort of plow through it. But you're also getting something in the New Testament. And it allows you to see the bigger picture. There are a lot of plans. Some of you have that through the Bible in a year Bibles where they organize it all out for you. Some of you maybe download a Bible app and they send you a reminder or a text, an email or whatever. Uh, whatever you use, make a plan. But everybody gets one of these on their way out uh, today. That, that is my gift to you. Let's close uh, in a word of prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we want to come before you today and give you thanks and give you praise. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you've uh, given us your word. I pray that we would be devourers of your word, that we would uh, become more familiar with the the word, that there would be an ease with which we can uh, find things in your word and know things and think of things through your word. But that only comes through reading your word and having the Holy Spirit uh, instruct us through your word. And I pray uh, that you would do that 
uh, for us. Uh, In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Will you please stand and join with us as we close our worship this morning?